welcome back, everybody, to the latest version of the Children's Division podcast. I am uh, I am here with uh, Terry, Sarah, and Joni as we uh, get ready to continue our uh, discussion about all the issues that we have. We also have here with us uh, Haley Musso and uh, Liz Tisort to talk to us about some uh, interesting topics. And our focus today is is going to be. Uh, the things that we're doing that are consistent with Child Abuse Prevention Month, about prevention, about uh, the good work we're doing. So uh, what, I, what I think we should do first is uh, give Haley and Liz the opportunity to introduce themselves and tell us about their work. Haley, uh, why don't you talk to us about who you are and what you do? Hi, everybody. I'm Haley Musso. I actually work for um, the State Technical Assistance Team. I am the Child Fatality Review Program Manager. Hey, Liz. Hi, everyone. I'm Liz Tietzor, and I am a program specialist at Central Office, and I oversee the critical event review process for um, the Children's Division. Okay. So, uh, Joni, Terry, Sarah, any questions you have for them about what they do that you think would inform our folks about their work and, uh, and can get us moving on our discussion? It's really exciting to have them, um, both Liz and Haley, here uh, today, Daryl, because, you know, We've done a lot of work on our critical event review process over the last couple of years. And uh, with it being April for Child Abuse Prevention Month, the national theme is growing better together. And what a better way to um, you know, dive into April than looking at trends that we're seeing and how can we as a division promote change. Um, we had over 63,000 reports in 2021 and 47 children passed away from child abuse or neglect in Missouri um, during that time frame. And so the work that everybody does on a daily basis and prevention, I think, is something that is difficult to measure. Um, you know, when are we really, what does prevention look like for children's division? And thinking about, you know, when I worked at the hotline, I heard numerous reporters over the years say, children's division is not proactive at all. You wait until something happens or a child dies. Does a child have to die before you take a report? And those are really difficult things to hear. And I know if the hotline's hearing them, you know, we hear that from people in the field. And everybody in, in this podcast, you know, works with families on a daily basis, works with kids and program lines. You know, Liz and Haley, with you all coming um, over today to talk with us about this from your perspectives, you know, what can Children's Division really do for prevention? So I'll go ahead and start. Um, the Children's Division is a huge partner for us and with us in Child Death Review. And with Child Death Review, we really believe that there can be no more important message to send after a child death than the multidisciplinary team coming together to discuss um, what went well, what we can improve, and then putting out a prevention message from that to prevent any future harm to the children in their communities. Um, another important uh, point of prevention is strong functional MDT relationships as a means of prevention. When we're all communicating and we're all on the same page about how to keep kids safe in our communities, it, it just always leads to better outcomes for these kiddos. A retrospective case study that we underwent, uh, a multidisciplinary group of us underwent, highlighted some huge communication gaps between the Children's Division and Probation and Parole. 
Um, speaking of multidisciplinary teams, the MDT that you spoke of, Haley, um, over the last couple of years, I really feel like the Children's Division has taken a look at our critical event process and has involved some of our additional um, MDT partners, including STAT, um, DMH, uh, Office of the Child Advocate, to come to the table with CD to look at these critical events in a more systems-wide lens. Um, I think a lot of people, when they think critical events, they think of reactive and punitive and, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. And we're really trying to take a look at what can we learn from these critical events? What can we learn and improve with our systems processes, not only within the children's division, but statewide? Child welfare is everyone's responsibility. And so there are many areas across the state um, where I know they have really good, strong relationships. And there's other areas where they are working um, to make those stronger. And so with the critical event process, over the last two years, um, as I said, we've been working to enhance our processes, have brought new members to the table. And moving forward, um, I'm excited that this coming year, uh, we will be working to get an important piece um, of the critical event process of the staff's voice. Um, it's, it's called debriefing, um, but it's voluntary contact with the staff for them to share their voice. Um, what was some of their barriers with the casework with the family? Um, what are some learning opportunities they thought of? And locally, what are those changes that happened? Um, and what can we learn from that? We also are working to establish a second level review structure um, that will have additional MDT partners at the table. These reviews at the second level will include the reviews where there's challenges that were related maybe to that MDT um, functioning or repeated trends that we've seen at critical event panel. And this group will assist in making recommendations to inform our statewide plan to prevent child maltreatment fatalities and to also inform that system-wide need of change or need of improvement. I think these are great points, Liz, and having those MDT members at the table is really important um, because it's not just on one side, you know, it's not just investigations, it's not just family-centered services, um, our alternative care, it really goes across program lines. Um, you know, Terry, what do you see as some of the trends coming out of the critical event process on the AC side of the shop? Um, certainly, I think we've identified two really large issues that we wanted to discuss today. And the first is around when we have children in care and the biological parents may have another child. And what we see a lot of times is that we're leaving the most vulnerable, that new baby in the home with the parent, Although we have a child that's in care, we haven't moved past supervised visitation, we have lots of concerns for safety still. And so we really need to start thinking about how we articulate to the court partners and through our MDTs about the safety issues that exist and how we can um, either support that family with greater structure in that home or bringing that child into care as well because of the ongoing safety issues that exist. I think one of the other areas that we wanted to touch on and that we see as a recurring theme is that um, when we have children that are in um, a foster placement or even a relative placement provider home, how we provide services to that family when they're starting to be in crisis, when things are getting uh, more heated in that home, when it looks like maybe that placement might disrupt. We, we see critical events coming out of those situations because everybody is really in a tense place at that time. 
And so thinking about our um, partnerships within our communities and how we can better serve those families, put additional supports in place, Um, Through this process of critical event, I think we've come up with some great strategies around a a mobility unit that can come in and assess our families immediately, and that's a partnership with our Department of Mental Health providers. So I think through this process, as Liz said, this isn't a, a gotcha moment when we're doing critical events, but rather how can we better partner and how can we really support our families and our staff? I think um, to follow up kind of, Terry, on where you were going with that, as you talk about, it's not a gotcha moment, no one's getting in trouble. It's really kind of an opportunity to learn from tragedy, really. And so along that same vein, I would be curious from Liz, Haley, Sarah, or Terry's perspective, um, you know, what are some trends that you've seen or that we can identify to then act as preventative measures to come out of the critical event review process? That's a great question. And I think something that we have seen recently and and within the past year is, and also with changes in in state law around marijuana and the the medical marijuana card, we're still seeing um, critical events that have marijuana use by the caretaker in the home. And then following thereafter, like um, there's critical events or, something happening in that home. And it's important to remember that no matter what the substance, it's always addressing that impact of what that substance is doing to the parent's functioning. Um, so I think um, our assessing of, of the overall parent's um, ability to care and protect that child based on the child's vulnerabilities, um, based on what the different many stressors and factors going on in that family home. And I'm excited also around this. Um, Misty Allen and myself, due to this trend, we are actually coming up with a roadshow of sorts in the coming months. And so we will be going office to office, circuit to circuit, and meeting with frontline staff discussing this, discussing how do we assess marijuana, especially when it's in correlation to our newborn crisis assessments. When it, those newborn crisis assessments come across of um, the mom just testing positive for marijuana, how do we fully assess and how do we fully dive in and see what that root cause is, see what um, else is going on in that family structure so we can uh, truly provide that prevention uh, to, the, to the families in need. I would add, Liz touched on the NCATS, but it's always a trend in the child death review and um, again in critical events, um, safe sleep and safe sleep practices, making sure when we're going into those homes that we're reiterating the ABCs of safe sleep. Every year we have approximately 100 babies die in unsafe sleeping situations in Missouri. It's our number one preventable type of child fatality and babies under one sleep safest if they sleep alone on their backs and in a crib. I think it's also important, Haley, to remember that it's not only that talk to have with the parent, but to any caregiver Mm -hmm. that that child may have contact with. Um, That can be grandparents, babysitters, even older siblings in that home that may be left to care for that infant. Um, Choosing a safe caregiver is definitely one of the most important decisions a parent has to make for their child. Um, And we can offer them some support in this process and also remind them it's okay to ask for help. Reach out and ask for help from either us as the children's division or their community and family. Um, Children's Trust Fund, I do want to remind everyone, does have a great handout that is located on their website. Um, Who do you trust with your child that I think is something that we can provide to parents that will help them think through that process of choosing a safe caregiver and what to look for. 
Another trend coming out of the critical event review and the child death review is safe gun storage. Um, And when we think about gun storage in the child welfare space, we can think about it in a number of ways. Teens die by firearms due to suicides or them engaging in risk-taking behaviors that can lead to um, accidental or intentional fatalities by firearm. We also see toddlers and other young children who gain access to firearms when they're not stored properly that end up hurting themselves or others. And safe storage of a firearm can look different if you're a teen or a young child, but I think something that's coming out more and more, and I think Sarah has brought this up a couple of times, is we we really can no longer operate under the understanding that this teen knows where this firearm is and knows not to access it. We um, really need to reiterate to families the risks that are associated with guns. And I think it's also to remember many of us have had, have young children or we also we, we have young children in our caseload. We have to remember kids are curious. That is just an innate thing. They, they go and they explore and they open doors they shouldn't open. They, they open the closet when you've told them, don't go in there. Um, and if that is where a parent is storing their, their guns or if a safe still has a key in it and it's still accessible, um, we, we have to have these conversations um, as far as where is the gun being held? Where, how are you storing it? Um, not only if it's on the report that there's a concern for a gun in the home, but if you're just in the home and, and, and talking in general about supervision and concerns in the home, that should be a common question we're asking our families. Is there a gun in your home? And that begins the conversation. It, it, you're not seeking to um, tell them it's wrong or, or that this is how you should do it, but you're seeking to inform. And, and I think it's very important to remember that not only are we asking that question, but remind the parents when their kids go to somebody else's house for that instance. Remind the parents, ask them um, when you drop your child off at Uncle Johnny's house, is there a gun in your house? And, and start that conversation there so we can always be assured that the kids are safe, not only at mom and dad's house, but at uncles, grandparents, friends. Um, encourage them to ask questions when they leave their kids with others. It makes it even a little bit more enticing, I think, whenever you tell them, don't touch something. I mean, (laughs) isn't that what uh, you see a lot is if if you say, don't go in the closet or don't look at something, like, what's the first thing that kids are going to do whenever (laughs) you leave? They're going to look in the closet. Um, Even on reports where we're not sure there's a gun. I mean, I heard some great things coming out of the St. Louis City office on, um, you know, when they go out on a report, they not only um, engage on the concerns that are in the report and allegations put forth, but they always stop and have a moment of checking in on gun safety. You know, is um, is there a gun in the home? Um, and it's really, this is an interesting um, conversation that we could really engage our special counsel on as well. Um, but, you know, guns are a right um, for people to have. And so that is a conversation that sometimes, you know, people have strong feelings about having guns and and storage of guns and their right to bear arms. And so, you know, how do you make sure that their rights are covered, but we're still able to have that conversation? I don't know if anybody else has had those conversations or have tips on how to ask those questions when, you know, dealing with kids or having conversations with families. I think it's important to come from a space of, I want to respect you, but I want to help you keep your kids safe. And as long as we're keeping those two things in mind with this family, um, 
you know, I respect your right, but these are real risks that happen. These are real things that we see again out of the child death review process or the critical event review process that we want to help you prevent. And now that with marijuana also being, um, you know, uh, medical marijuana, having that constitutional right to have that and have a card for that, um, you know, how many times have we heard it's just marijuana? I just, I know you mentioned it, Liz, but it's so important. I think we just hit it again. What did you mention about, um, you know, the substance and the impact? And I know Terry says that really well. You're assessing the impact of the substance. It's not not that it's marijuana, not that it's alcohol. It can be any of those things. You're you're assessing how does it impact that parent and their functioning and their ability to care for the child for after they use or for the hour after the, the depending on the, the how long it lasts. I think we've um, really tried to articulate to our teams, and it's important just to have those conversations with our families. Just take the label off some of these things and really look at how it impacts um, functioning of the parent. You know, a cigarette smoke in a home with severe asthma can have the same, you know, neglectful impact that, um, you know, more lethal drugs may have. So taking the labels off and really just talking about how this impacts the child, I think is so critical. We had that conversation this week at the, uh, at the advanced trial skills course in, uh, at Lake of the Ozarks with the judges, we were discussing marijuana and the fact that a person's got a medical marijuana card does not give them license or, uh, mean that we should turn a blind eye when the use of that marijuana is causing them to not be able to keep track of their kids or not be able to take care of their house or any other problem that it's causing for them. Uh, and, uh, you know, the it's no more than a, you turn 21 and you can drink alcohol. Now you're not at liberty to just be drunk all the time and have it ruin your life. And so uh, I, I think we see some of that. I mean, I could go on about the, the problems I see with marijuana in, in general, just what I've seen from my years on the bench and what I know from studies I've read, it, it is not this innocuous, nice, innocent thing. It is an intoxicating substance that can cause detriment to you and your child. And so I, I think we're uh, not only at liberty to take those things into account, I think it's our responsibility uh, to take them into account. Uh, and I, I've noticed uh, on more than one occasion, it seems like the safe sleep and the marijuana have gone together. I don't know if you noticed that, Terry, but I've seen in the last few times, it's like, yeah, there was a medical marijuana card and there was unsafe sleep. I don't know if there's a correlation between those things, but I'm, I'm thinking there might be. Yeah, and I think Liz hit on that just a little bit as far as we're seeing that trend more frequently and that though that really is a correlation that we, we need to have those conversations with our families about. Yes, and, and I, I think you, you hit on the head, Daryl, in the sense of we're seeing that correlation and we're also seeing that when we're talking to the parents about their use of marijuana, they have they make the statement that I won't use around the child or I'll call somebody over so I can use. We have to have a reality conversation with the parent of, are they going to think that far ahead and truly plan that out? Um, they may tell us that they're not going to use. They may tell us that they're going to not smoke around the child. But in reality, I, I think we have to have a, an in-depth and, and a deep conversation with those parents of, let's let's be real. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think we've seen, um, you know, it's hit. It's asking the right questions. It's not, you know who you're going to have, and I'll use marijuana as an example, or where you're at when you do that. 
but if you're coming back in to the home around your child, like what's the impact of that? How are you behaving? How are you keeping safe? And to your point, not just planning, you know, that's a lot. If you're always going to say someone else is going to come over and supervise because what happens when they can't, you know, um, that's a part of a larger conversation that I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you had mentioned about having those rip the bandaid off, have those hard conversations because with any right comes responsibility, right? So whether you're talking about guns, whether you're talking about medical marijuana card, you still have a responsibility with that. Well, and I'm glad you brought up the guns because just like we can have a safe storage conversation about guns, we can have that about marijuana and any other substance that you're bringing into your home as well, especially with um, toddlers and babies who tend to put everything in their mouths. When it's accessible to the child, it, it poses additional risk as well. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up um, toddlers in this instance because edibles is also something that has come up recently in some critical events and just in some research. And as Haley just said, toddlers will put anything in their mouth. And um, sometimes these edibles look like gummies. They look like something that they would go ahead and eat. And so we have to also think further beyond marijuana as something that is in a package or it's the leafy substance. It's also coming in edibles and oils and many other things that we, even as practitioners, may not immediately recognize sitting on the table in their house. And so um, having the conversations of what sort of substance we're using, what it looks like, where they store it, and the accessibility to the child is very important. And I didn't know if, if Daryl, who I'm putting on the spot right now, wants to speak into a little bit. I think of when you have to acknowledge with the critical event review process to go past the point of it being fear-based. And I know Daryl spent a lot of time talking about how overall in child welfare, you know, we have kind of this um, culture of fear. And I think that that weaves in nicely to kind of this process that it's it's typically thought of as fear-based, but it's really, really not meant to be that way. Um, and I'm putting Daryl on the spot if he wanted to kind of talk about that or not. <laughs> You know, no, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that because it's been one of the main things that I've been saying is, and something that I've concluded over the years of having, uh, you know, been on the bench is that I, I we, we cannot be basing our decisions uh, on fear of uh, things that, that the evidence isn't pointing us to, but that we are afraid might happen. And so, you know, so if we're looking at a critical event, well, let's say, Let's say, for example, we've got somebody who was, has, has done their, uh, let's suppose the case came into uh, court because of, and the child came into care because of substance use. And the mom is working her program and she's doing okay. And we make decisions based on that. And then uh, something goes wrong when bad boyfriend comes over and bad, bad boyfriend kills child. Well, the, your, your a fear-based reaction is, oh my goodness, when we've got a mom who's been on drugs, we've got to not work toward bringing that child home because this could happen. Well, we've got to think about what the causal connection is and, and not ascribe blame to the tragedy, but try to find try to find patterns and evidence that will guide us toward things to look for in the future rather than thinking, oh, I'm in trouble for this or, oh, I'm responsible for this death. You're not. I mean, I use an example all the time. When I was a uh, when I was a, a reasonably new judge, and I was insistent upon following the law that we placed with relatives, which I still am, uh, and I had a case where uh, we placed with a relative, uh, an appropriate grandmother, by all accounts, uh, where a 
there was a, a, a mistake, an error, uh, some kind of problem like that. And we ended up uh, having a child drown in a pool. Uh, there is no connection between those things, but nevertheless, uh, it is something that uh, happened, but we can't be afraid to place with grandmothers now uh, because uh, a child drowned in a pool. Uh, what we have to do, I think, and I, again, this is me going off on my, on my rant, but I will, uh, I, I think we have to change the culture. We are, we are reactive, and not just us, the division, but I'm talking about the whole juvenile justice system, including how I functioned as a judge and how sometimes we hear from juvenile officers, is that I, I, we, we see something happen and we react. Uh, and how we react is, is based upon what fear we have of what might happen or a fear based on something that happened in the past. And I think we gotta, we got to turn that. Uh, to be a, a uh, as opposed to a reactive, fear-based system, a proactive system that's based on hope and evidence and best practice. And so uh, the idea of t- discussing critical events should not cause us to be, cons- you know, to, to become paralyzed by our fear. And if anybody wants to wants to ask follow-up questions about that, but that's, that's my philosophy and what I've been uh, saying to people is that that's the mindset and the approach that we need to have. Well, Daryl, you can write my mission statement for critical events because that is exactly what our critical event process is striving for. Um, we go based on the safety science of, that you just spoke of, that the, we want to learn. We want to we learn from what is happening and hope to prevent future tragedy. And so we know that um, by coming up with improvement opportunities, it gives us a path. It gives us an, a, a way to go and strive to to make those those changes to the system, not only within children's division, but as Sarah and all of us have mentioned, the entire child welfare system, because everybody has that collective um, need of of keeping children safe. And so if, um, it's just working together to to come up with those improvement opportunities and those learning opportunities. I, I am just really excited about the discussion that we've had today um, and leading into Child Abuse Prevention Month and hope that um, everybody that's listening, surely we're trending by now. Um, and I mean, <laughs> third podcast in probably top of the charts um, for all department uh, podcasts. And so really, truly appreciate everyone listening and, um, you know, wear your blue in April, Child Abuse Prevention Month, wear your blue, take pictures in your local offices, send them up through um, our communication department in the division so we can send those over to the department for uh, posting on social media. Spread the word on topics that we've talked about today. Um, You know, have those conversations locally. Have those conversations when you're meeting with families. And um, we're looking forward to Foster Care Appreciation Month in May. And um, hope you tune in then. Thank you for joining.